0: Good evening, take your hymnals if you would please. Turn to 636, way in the back, 636, revive us again, 636. Let's all stand and sing out together. Here we go. We praise thee, O God, for the Son of thy love, for Jesus who died and is now gone above. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Hallelujah, amen. Hallelujah, thine the glory. When we get to that chorus, it says amen or amen, however you prefer to say it. But I'd like a little more emphasis on that as we sing it, all right? On the second. We praise Thee, O God, for Thy Spirit of light, who has shown us our Savior and scattered our night. Hallelujah, Thine the glory. Hallelujah, amen. Hallelujah, Thine the glory. Revive us again. All glory and praise To the Lamb that was slain Who has borne all our sins And has cleansed every stain Hallelujah, thine the glory Hallelujah, amen Hallelujah, thine the glory Revive us again Revive us again Fill each heart with With Thy love, may each soul be rekindled with fire from above, hallelujah, thine the glory, hallelujah, amen, hallelujah, thine the glory, revive us again. Brother Les Birmingham, would you open and lift your voice to God tonight, please? Amen. Turn over to 414, if you would. Be so kind to remain standing. 414. All I need. We'll sing the first, second, and the last verse. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is made to me. All I need, all I need. He alone is all my plea. He is all I need. Wisdom, righteousness, and power. Holiness forevermore. My redemption full and sure. He is all I need. On the second. Jesus is my all in all. All I need, all I need, while He keeps, I cannot fall. He is all I need wisdom, righteousness, and power, holiness forevermore, my redemption full and sure. He is all. Glory, glory to the Lamb. Glory, glory to the Lamb. By His Spirit sealed I am, He is all I need. Wisdom, righteousness, and power, holiness forevermore. My redemption full and sure, He is all I need. Let's sing the chorus together every day with Jesus 254. Every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. 254, 254. Every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. Every day with Jesus I love him more and more. Jesus saves and keeps me and he's the one I'm waiting for. Every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day beam. Greet those around you and we'll come back and sing that one more time. Just a reminder. No announcements. Okay. A reminder, we're singing this and then you're on. Great. I like how you asked me. I know, open and the, open, <laughs> open in the, open wrong. in uh, so and then I fell back. As you make your way back to your seat, let's sing that together one more time, please. Every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. Every day with Jesus I love him more and more. Jesus saves and keeps me and he's the one I'm waiting for. Every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. Thank you. You may be seated. I'm going to ask the men that they would remain standing for our offering tonight. I appreciate uh, you being here tonight. This is another opportunity for us to worship uh, the Lord uh, this evening. I'm going to ask the blessing upon this offering. Lord, I pray that you would bless this offering tonight, that it be used to further the gospel, and this local church family, in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much, Katie. A classical setting of moment by moment. A lot of time we have a lot of good stretches of time, but it can be those little moments where we doubt or we fail or we stop trusting, and it's moment by moment. Let's take our hymnals. Turn to 273. Thank you for that. 273, it's just like his great love. 273. A friend I have called Jesus Whose love is strong and true And never fails however 'tis tis tried No matter what I do I've sinned against this love of His But when I knelt to pray Confessing all my guilt to Him The sand clouds rolled away. And it's just like Jesus to roll the clouds away. It's just like Jesus to keep me day by day. It's just like Jesus all along the way. It's just like his grave. Sometimes when clouds of trouble blot out the sky above, I cannot see my Savior's face. I doubt His wondrous love. But He from heaven's mercy seat, beholding my despair, in love removes the cloud. Between and shows me he is there. It's just like Jesus to roll the clouds away. It's just like Jesus to keep me day by day. It's just like Jesus all along the way. It's just like his. Be so kind to stand as we sing that last verse, oh I could sing forever, oh I could sing forever of Jesus love divine, of all his care and tenderness for this for life of mine, his love is in Peace be still and rolls the clouds away. And it's just like Jesus to roll the clouds away. It's just like Jesus to keep me day by day. It's just like Jesus all along the way. It's just like
1: His great love. Wonderful singing. Please be seated. Take your Bibles tonight and turn to Revelation chapter 17, Revelation chapter 17 in your Bibles here this evening. It's good to see you here on a Sunday night and uh, good to see many of you back today. Had a wonderful uh, morning today and enjoying my time this morning in our Sunday school class and, uh, and then in the morning service I've, I'm thoroughly enjoying the studies that I'm doing both in Ephesians as well as Revelations and uh, I hope you are as well. Revelation chapter 17 is where we're at. Uh, Mr. Chapman, if you could advance the slide once. All right. Uh, we've been, of course, studying our uh, the book of Revelation. And uh, you see 32 AD is about the time that Jesus Christ died on the cross. Uh, he was raised from the dead, the resurrection. And then shortly thereafter, uh, the day of Pentecost, he sent his Holy Spirit, and uh, the local church age began. Uh, that's, we live in that age to this day, and it's going to conclude, the church age is going to conclude, as we've seen and studied, with the rapture. Uh, God's going to, he's not going to return to earth. He'll never touch down, so that's not the second coming. His first coming was when he was born in Bethlehem. His second coming won't be until the return of the Messiah. So the rapture, the believers are going to be caught up to be with the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. And then we've really been studying the seven years of Jacob's trouble. Is there a young person here who can tell me the other word that we've been using to, uh, to study the, the seven years of Jacob's trouble? It's a long word, starts with the letter T. Yes, that's correct. I don't know who said that. Was it a young person? I don't know. But we'll give, it, we'll give credit to the young people. Anyway, tribulations, So good job, young people, answering that question. At the first three and a half years of the seven years of tribulation upon the earth, the Antichrist is going to support Israel. And you remember, he's going to come to power um, peacefully. But the first three and a half years, as we studied it in detail, verse by verse, is really a time of misery upon the earth. At the midway point of the three and a half year point of the tribulation period, he's going to turn on the nation of Israel. And he's going to begin persecuting the nation of Israel uh, intensely. And that's going to last for three and a half years as well. Uh, The seven years of tribulation or the seven years of Jacob's trouble or Israel's trouble is going to end with the return of the Messiah as king of kings and lord of lords. Um, The Messiah is the promised one of God. He's the son of God, the only begotten son of God who came and died on a cross for your sins and for mine. And uh, the Antichrist and the devil are going to be overthrown. And their hold upon the earth, their grip upon the earth is going to be broken. And Jesus Christ is going to reign for 1,000 years. And uh, we've looked through this. If you could go one more time, Mr. Chapman, that'd be great. And you remember as we've studied this after the rapture, we've studied the sealed judgments. We've studied all of the seven trumpet judgments that we believe take place in the first half of the tribulation period. And then in the second half of the tribulation period, you see at the bottom of the slide... Um, before the second coming, we, we've studied just uh, it was a week, uh, two weeks ago, we studied the seven vile judgments, or the seven bold judgments, and we studied those in chapter 16. Now we're in chapter 17, and really chapter 17 is a step-by-step description uh, of really the victory that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to have over the Antichrist and his kingdom. And there are really two parts to the Antichrist kingdom. One part of his kingdom is religious. Okay, um, Mankind, we are religious beings. That's the way, way it is. You, you may meet somebody, maybe you know somebody who says that they're an atheist. They don't believe in God is what they mean by that. Um, they don't uh, leave room in their worldview for God to play a part in any way. They might call themselves an atheist. They don't believe in God. Well, the truth is, God created man, and God made mankind to worship. And uh, mankind is religious. We are religious by nature. We believe in things. We applaud things. We worship. We give praise to things. We adore things. And God made us not to adore things or to worship things. He made us to adore and worship him and bring praise to his name. And so one part of the Antichrist uh, kingdom, the one world government that will be formed, is very religious. In fact, the first three and a half years of the tribulation period, this one world religion really is going to be the dominant role player during the first half of the tribulation period. But in the second half of the tribulation period, and really starting about the midway point, the Confederacy of Ten Kings, along with the Antichrist, are going to cast off the religious influence. And, uh, and they really are going to destroy her completely. And so the second part of the Antichrist kingdom is political and economic, which shouldn't be a surprise to us. Really, those three parts make up our world today. Religion, e- economics, and politics make up a big part of what we do in the world today. So I want to I give a warning before we even read this passage. I don't know how many of you read chapter 17 in preparation for tonight, but it's not an easy passage, again. And uh, as I've talked with a couple of the pastors about this, it's a challenge. It's a challenge to study it, and it's a challenge to preach it. But I'm going to do so biblically, and uh, and I'll do so understanding who's sitting in the room here tonight as well. So, Revelation chapter 17. I'm going to begin reading in verse number 1, and, uh, and then we'll work our way through this passage. It says in verse number 1 of Revelation 17, And there came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, remember the seven bowl judgments, and talked with me, John says, saying unto me, Come hither, and I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore. Now, that word is going to show up a few times in this passage. I want to define that word for us before we go any further. What is a harlot or what is a whore as it's mentioned in this passage? And I'm going to define it. Many of you are adults, and so I'm not going to go into detail, but I want to define it for us in a way that applies to this passage. Uh, A harlot or a whore as it's spoken of is someone who's selfish, And everyone here, even young people, can understand this. Selfish, concerned only with what they want. And they'll do almost anything for what they want. They don't care who they hurt. They try to entice people who are simple to do what they want. So whenever that word, or a word like it, harlot or whore, is used in this passage, young people and adults, that's what I want you to think about. Okay, it's very important because... Uh, God uses some, some names in this passage to help all people through all church ages grasp the severity of the situation and of this movement that he's describing. So he says this, he's, he says in verse number one, Come hither and I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters. Verse two, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication. And the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk or influenced with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away, John writes, in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast. What color is the color scarlet? Can anybody tell me? Red? Correct? Okay, good. Uh, Full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. So you really get the idea here that she's been very selfish and promiscuous. And uh, she's been involved, this particular individual, which really isn't so much an individual as it's representing a religion She's been very involved with all of the kings of the earth. Verse 5. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon, the great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of saints. Oh, he's describing her for us. Drunken with the blood of saints. Who are the saints? Could someone tell me? Who are the saints? Remember, a saint is not someone who's dead. Who has had a council declare them and given them sainthood. What, who's a saint? Saved people, believers. If you're a born-again child of God, you could be 10 years old here today. And if you're, if you're believed upon the name of Jesus Christ, you are a saint in the eyes of God. And so he says, I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints. She's killed a lot of people who believe upon Jesus Christ. Drunken with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus and when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. And that word admiration means wonder, amazement. Not so much that he wanted to be like her. Verse 7. And the angel said unto me, Wherefore didst thou marvel? I will tell thee the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carrieth her, with which hath the seven heads and ten horns. And now, now the angel is going to describe or explain for us what he's just announced to us. Verse 8. The beast that thou sawest was and is not, and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition, or the word is destruction or hell. And they that dwell in the earth shall wonder, whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they behold the beast that was and is not and yet is. And here is the mind which hath wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains, on which the woman sitteth. And there are seven kings. Five are fallen, and one is, and the other is not yet come. And when he cometh, he must continue a short space. And the beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth. Speaking about the Antichrist, he'll be the eighth leader or kingdom. And is of the seven, and goeth into perdition. Or go, go, uh, well, he'll go and perish and go to hell forever. Verse 12. And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings, which have received no kingdom as yet, but receive power as kings one hour or a short period of time with the beast, the Antichrist. These have one mind, these ten kings, and shall give their power and strength unto the beast, or the Antichrist. These shall make war with the Lamb. Who's the Lamb? Capital L. Who's the Lamb? The Lord Jesus Christ. You're right. And so the beast is the Antichrist. He's going to make war with the Lamb, Jesus Christ. But notice verse 14, the middle part. And the Lamb shall overcome them. He's going to be victorious, for he is Lord. That capital L means the word Greek word kurios. He is the supreme authority of heaven and earth. He is the Lord of lords. And the King of kings. And they that are with him are called... And notice the description of God's people who are with him. Called, we've talked about that over the past few weeks, chosen and faithful. And he saith unto me, the waters which thou sawest where the horse sitteth are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. So that's not hard to understand, is it? The waters that the Antichrist and even the horse sitteth upon are the, the people, the nations of the earth. "...and the ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast, these shall hate the whore." The ten kings are going to hate this religious organization. "...and shall make her desolate and naked, and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God hath put it in their hearts to fulfill his will, and to agree and give their kingdom unto the Antichrist, the beast, until the words of God shall be fulfilled." And the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. Okay, let's pray, and we'll ask God for wisdom, and then let's look at these verses together. They're the word of God. God wants us to hear them and think about them. You know, some parts of the Bible are so encouraging to preach and to listen to, and other parts are harder. They really are. But remember, this is the word of God, and it, uh, it is profitable for instruction, and it's profitable for you and for me. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, help us tonight, I pray. Open our minds, enlighten our minds by your Holy Spirit. Help us to understand the truth and to see it. Help me as I teach and preach. Father, may, I, may, you, be, may, I, may you use me for your glory, and uh, may I be the mouthpiece that you want me to be tonight. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So, one of the things that jumps off the page as we've read those verses, uh, uh, all of them in chapter 17, is the fact that the Lamb, Jesus Christ, is going to be victorious. And that ought to rejoice your heart. And it ought to rejoice my heart. And as we read and study these verses, don't, don't let that thought leave your mind. In chapter 17, which is what we just read, the religious system of Babylon is destroyed. In chapter 18, the political and economic Uh, system of Babylon is destroyed. And chapter 19, which we'll not get to tonight, records how Jesus Christ is going to return to the earth and he's going to judge Satan and he's going to judge the false prophet. You might have noticed as we read chapter 17 that God uses a lot of symbolism in this passage. And I think he does so. uh, So believers of all ages throughout church history will be encouraged to maintain their purity. It's something that God desires. He wants you to maintain your purity. He doesn't want us to become like the world in which we live. It's so important. Um, This religious system that we're going to look at tonight that's described in graphic detail, it exists today. It existed at least 500 years before Jesus was ever born. And it will exist and it will dominate the world during the tribulation period. And people, uh, the devil has used it, it is of the devil, and the devil has used it to deceive millions upon millions upon millions of people to not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and instead to embrace religion that leads them to hell for all of eternity. And I love it, the fact that Jesus Christ, the Lamb, is going to be victorious over this... Religious and wicked system. So the true church is, is pure. And someday uh, we are going to be presented, the true church is going to be presented to the Lord Jesus Christ uh, as his wife is the picture that's given. Look over to Revelation chapter 19 and verse 7. Revelation chapter 19 and verse 7. It's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the bride of Christ, which is what we're called... Uh, the local church is called the Bride of Christ. Believers, all those who believe upon the name of Jesus Christ. Someday we're going to be presented to our bridegroom, which is Jesus Christ. Revelation 19 in verse 7 says, "'Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white.'" For the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. And of course, we get that righteousness through who? We get that righteousness through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. And it's going to be a wonderful reunion day. The body of Christ, the bride of Christ, reunited in person with the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's going to be really a celebration of what Jesus Christ accomplished in in coming to this earth and uh, dying for our sins and paying our sin debt, but then sending his spirit to keep us, as we talked about this morning, and and keep us secure and, and help us go through this life in this wicked world in which we live. When the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Corinth about keeping themselves pure in preparation for their husband, is the word he used, Paul vaguely, I think, was referring to the marriage supper of the Lamb, which I just read to you. From there in Revelation 19, uh, in Second Corinthians chapter 11, Paul said it this way, For I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. You see, the true church is pure, but false religions and false religious systems are impure. And the harlot in chapter 17 is a false world religion that has rejected the truth and really sold herself for personal gain and power. I'm going to say that again. The harlot of chapter 17 is a false world religion that has rejected the truth of Jesus Christ by faith alone, by the grace of God alone. And this false religious system has sold herself for personal gain and power upon the earth. Chapter 17 describes the coming judgment of God upon a religious system that has enslaved men and women, boys and girls, in superstitious darkness for centuries. Uh, Three thoughts this evening and we'll be done. One, number one, this religious system is exposed in the first seven verses of Revelation chapter 17. So look back there, Revelation chapter 17. And really, the first six verses of our text reveal to us an awful scene. It's horrible. You read about these, and they're graphic words. And they paint a picture for us of something. And by the way, uh, don't you think God knew uh, what his words would paint for us? He wants us to see this system for what it is. And we live in a day... Uh, where there's a strong emphasis uh, on an ecumenical movement where we all, all religions kind of come together and melt together in one. And we de-emphasize certain biblical truths and we emphasize what we agree on and then we all just pretend like we all believe the same thing. Um, but in this situation, as we'll see as we go along, God doesn't see it quite that way. Uh, really, He uses symbols to help us see that there are two powerful forces at work. One is religious. We'll look at that one tonight. And the second one is political and economic. Uh, Notice with me, first of all, as we start here in verse 1, that there are ten details uh, given to us that reveal a false religious system. And two thoughts before I give you those ten details. Number one, uh, it's going to become crystal clear as we go through this passage that the woman is symbolic of something bigger. In other words, the woman spoken of is not a human being. This is not one woman or one lady. And normally in the Bible, by the way, or not, I shouldn't say normally, but at times, a woman is used to represent religion. Uh, and sometimes, if it's good, a good woman, it's used to represent something that is true and right and pure. And at other times it represents something that is very pervert, perverse and far away from what God desires religion to be. So, first of all, the woman is a symbolic of something bigger. Uh, but secondly, the woman is an ecumenical religious system, powerful enough to gain a controlling influence in the Antichrist government before the tribulation and during the tribulation period. Notice with me in verse 1 as we begin there. It says, And there came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, talking with me, saying unto, unto me, Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters. So first of all, I notice of the ten details here that she's identified as the great whore. And as I've already mentioned, and I want it to be very clear, the word whore, harlot, really is an emphasis to us of someone who is very selfish, and is willing to use others for their personal gain. That's what this religious system does. It also says at the end of verse 1 that she sitteth upon many waters. In verse 2, you might notice it says that it describes this, this false religious system as someone who, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication. You see it there in verse 2. And at the end of verse 2, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk, with the wine of her fornication. In other words, the entire earth has been influenced by the relationships that this religious system has had with the governments and the kings of the earth. In verse number 3, the middle part, uh, John says, I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast. In other words, this religious system has come to power Uh, over the Antichrist for a time. Think with me about that for just a moment, and we'll come back to this later. But this religious system is so powerful that she's actually going to be kind of controlling things for the first three and a half years of the tribulation period. That's how powerful this religious system is. In verse 3, the middle part, uh, it's emphasizing that because she's sitting upon the beast. In verse 4, it says, And the woman was arrayed in purple, and scarlet colors. There's a lot of wealth involved. Verse 4, the middle part. She's decked with gold and precious stones. Again, this religion is very wealthy. The end of verse number 4 says, she has a golden cup in her hand full of abominations, which has the idea of idolatry and filthiness of her fornication. Verse 5 says, And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon, the great, the mother of harlots, and abominations, there's that word again, idolatry is the emphasis of that word, abominations of the earth. So, the word abomination in the Bible has a strong inference of idolatry. Keep that in mind. The woman in chapter 17 is given a name. And you saw it there in verse 5. Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots. It's a religion that Satan has used and will use to deceive mankind and to lead them away from God. Notice verse 6, the beginning part. It says, and I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Now, again, we're just... Looking at a description, she's being exposed for who she really is. God's describing her to us. This, excuse me, this religious system has brutally persecuted true believers in Christ. Now, there, those are ten specific details in those verses about this religious system. Now, the other part of it is the political side of things. And that's the Antichrist, that's the beast. Um, And there are five details given about him in those same verses. Notice verse number three again, the middle part. A scarlet-colored beast, that would be the Antichrist, full of names of blasphemy. At the end of verse number three, having seven heads um, and ten horns. Verse seven, the beast that carrieth her. Uh, Verse eight, the beginning part, the beast that thou sawest was and is not, and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. So in those first seven verses, really, all I want to emphasize to you is this. This religious system is exposed for what it is. It's wicked, it's vile, it's corrupt. Um, God uses very strong language. It's a, this religion is abusive and dominant in the world system. Uh, secondly, this evening, I want to notice that the secret of this religious system is exposed or explained. It's exposed in verses 1 through 7, or for what it is, it's awful. It's explained beginning in verse 7 down through verse number 15. And again, remember, there really are two parts. One is political and one is religious. Uh, We'll start, we'll we'll do it as it's written in chapter 17. So we'll start with the beast or the political side of things, the Antichrist. Uh, Notice in verse number 9, the latter part, It says, the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. Now, some believers believe uh, or will teach that the seven mountains are a reference to the seven hills that the city of Rome sits on. And you might have heard that or read that before. And I suppose that is possible. However, it seems to me that the context indicates something different. And it seems to me that the seven mountains are actually a reference to kings or kingdoms. Notice verse number 10. You'll see what I'm saying. And there are seven kings. You see, the, it says the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. And there are seven kings. Five are fallen. One is, one exists at the time John was being told these things by the angel. And the other is not yet come, and when he cometh he must continue a short space. The tribulation period is not a long period of time. So it seems clear to me that these kings represent kings of the Roman Empire. Five are fallen. Uh, Five kings have come and gone, or five kingdoms have come and gone. Kingdoms like Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, One is, speaking of the existing kingdom, at the time John received the revelation. What was the existing kingdom at the time uh, that was dominant in the world at the time John received the revelation? Can anybody tell me? Rome, the Roman Empire, was dominant at that particular time. Um, And then verse 11, notice what it says there. And the beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth, and is of the seven like-minded, similar, and goeth into perdition. He's going to be destroyed. So the one world government during the tribulation period, led by the Antichrist, will be the eighth. Verse 12, notice, And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings, which have received no kingdom as yet, but receive power as kings one hour with the beast. These ten kings, as I mentioned just briefly, uh, maybe ten minutes ago, Uh, These ten kings are uh, going to continue with the Antichrist. They're going to promise him allegiance. They are really in like-minded rebellion against the Lamb, against the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice verse number 13. These have one mind and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. Uh, They're going to promise complete allegiance to the Antichrist. And they're going to promise their complete cooperation. Can you imagine a leader a, a, a leader of a nation promising allegiance of all of his people to the Antichrist? And saying, we're going to support you, whatever, you know, apparently there are deals being brokered. And we're going to give, give you whatever you want. That's what's going to happen. Uh, notice in verse number 14. These shall make war with the Lamb, these ten kings. And the Antichrist are going to make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. And so these ten kings are going to continue to serve the Antichrist until the end of the tribulation period, when they're going to bring their armies into the Valley of Megiddo, the Battle of Armageddon, in really a final act of rebellion against God. Against the Lord Jesus Christ, but praise to the Lamb, praise to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb shall overcome them. is the victorious words in verse 14. And really, that's going to mark the end of the beast. That's going to mark the end of the Antichrist in his reign. Notice verse number 3. Back in verse 3, the middle part, it says, as uh, the, the explanation of the Antichrist continues, that the scarlet-colored beast is full of names of blasphemy. Of the five characteristics given about the beast, this first one is not explained. And uh, I believe the reason why is because it was explained back in chapter 13. Look there with me, chapter 13. In your Bibles, in verse number 1. Chapter 13 in verse 1. full of names of blasphemy. What is he talking about here? Chapter 13 and verse 1, it says, And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast, the Antichrist, rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. Look down to verse number 5 in chapter 13. And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. And then notice verse number 6. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. And so the Antichrist is characterized by being blasphemous or blasphemy. And the word blasphemy means irreverent toward God or reproachful toward God. And that's the nature of the Antichrist. And really it's the blasphemous nature of all governments uh, who are in opposition to the will of God. It existed in the time of Nimrod. You remember when they erected the Tower of Babel? And it's still characteristics of government to this day who are in opposition to the will of God. So we've looked at how the beast or the Antichrist is explained. How about the, how about the woman that is mentioned in this passage, the harlot? Well, notice it, it says there, Mystery Babylon, in verse number 5. Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And again, I'm going to emphasize this. This is not a specific woman that he's talking about here. It's a world religious system that has dominion over the people of the world. Notice in verse number 15. Verse number 15. And he saith unto me, The waters which thou sawest, where the horse sitteth, are the peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And so the nations of the earth really are the sea of humanity that she sits upon, that have given her this power, who have believed her lies. The woman is identified also in verse 18 as that great city. Notice in verse 18, the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. I don't believe this is necessarily talking about a specific City, a capital city of some kind, as much as it is describing a religious system. In fact, look back to chapter 14 in verse number 8. Chapter 14 in verse 8. And there followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And I believe there's some consistency here. He's talking about the very same thing. So there's one religious system that all nations and all world leaders have been forced to bow down to throughout the history of the world. And I sh- maybe I shouldn't say all leaders. I don't think all leaders have bound, bowed down to her and worshipped her. But a great many have. And it's this Babylonian religion of idolatry. You cannot go anywhere in the world today, or a hundred years ago, or a thousand years ago, or three thousand years ago, where this re- religion was not present. No system in the world has enslaved more people than this religion. This worldwide religion dominates politics. You see it in verse number 18. In verse number 18, uh, the latter part. She reigneth over the kings of the earth. And, 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 and earlier on, as we read, and we'll see this later, that the ten kings are going to th- cast her off. Or they're going to destroy her. And they hate her as well. Why? Because she's been ruling them. She's been ruling them. And really the fact that the harlot sits upon the beast in verse 3 combined with the statement here in verse 18, the latter part, that she reigneth over the kings of the earth tells us that this world religion, it does and it will have tremendous power over world government. And this is nothing new. The leaders of, of of the Babylonian this I, Babylonian idolatrous religion of the world has always vied with political leaders for dominance over their countries. True Christianity, though, never seeks never seeks political power. That ought to connect with us. True Christianity never seeks political power. We don't seek to overtake over America. There's another religion in uh, the Islamic religion, and they desire that their law become the law of whatever land they're in. That, that, is, not, that is not what you and I as believers are called to do. Impose the, the word of God upon others or impose the Ten Commandments on others. That is not what God's called us to do. He's called us to live by it, to submit ourselves to it. But Christianity never seeks political power. That doesn't mean that one of you can't run and be president of the United States someday, but it does mean that Trinity Baptist Church as a whole is not looking to take over the city council of Flushing or make a move in Lansing or something like that. Whenever the church uh, really as an organization has involved herself in politics, she has forsaken the will of God. Now I want to Step back for just a moment as we've, we've looked at the, the, this false religion, exposed for who she really is, and explained. And I want, I want to look at an overview of this Babylonian religious system, and I want to connect some dots for us. Uh, there's no doubt that this Babylonian religious system is of the devil. Okay, It contains enough truth to deceive a faithful or, or someone who's truly born again and enough error to lead someone's soul to hell for all of eternity. This Babylonian religious system is bigger than any one religion. And I want to emphasize that. It's not Hinduism. It's not, uh, uh, it's not Catholicism. It's not Buddhism or Confucianism or Taoism or any other ism. The Babylonian religions of the world, whether they be Greek or Indian, or African, or Roman, or Chinese. They're arrayed in gold, precious stones, costly array. They have much wealth. They are built on mystery, and they're built on idolatry. And the most well-known religion that is a part of this Babylonian religious system that you and I would recognize, would recognize is Roman Catholicism. In other words, much of what we know and recognize as Roman Catholicism actually existed hundreds of years before Roman Catholicism officially started. For instance, when the Bishop of Rome became dominant over the other church bishops in the area and the worship of Mary and other Babylonian practices were brought into Catholicism, all of these practices had one thing in common. They all existed before Jesus was ever born. And what's more, he didn't instruct any of us to practice any of these things. And I'm going to name some of them. Prayers for the dead. Prayers for the dead were not instituted by the Catholic Church until AD 300. They're not taught in Scripture anywhere but it, but their prayers for the dead are a regular part of ancestor worship of the Chinese who practiced it hundreds of years before Jesus. The the worship of Mary and the worship of the baby Jesus. Do we worship Jesus? Yes or no? Yes, we do. He is the Christ. He's the risen one. He is the Lord of lords and King of kings. We ought to worship him. But do we worship him in the sense of Mary and the baby? No. But the worship of Mary and, the, and baby Jesus existed hundreds of years before Jesus was ever born. Not by those names. And it was practiced by most of the major religions. That The mother and the baby were worshipped, they just had different names. And I'll dig into that a little bit more in just a few moments. Easter and Lent observances with 40 days fasting were practiced for the benefit of, uh, of an individual named Tammuz, 500 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. Turn your Bibles, if you would, to Ezekiel. I want you to see something. Ezekiel chapter 8. Ezekiel chapter 8. We're going to come back to Revelation, so hold your place there. But Ezekiel chapter 8. Ezekiel chapter 8 in verse number 7. Now remember, idolatry is at the center of this a Babylonian religious system that is very strong today, and it will dominate the world and even the Antichrist for the first three and a half years. Exodus, or excuse me, Ezekiel chapter eight, beginning in verse number seven. Ezekiel, God is showing him the idolatry that is happening in his day. Okay, this is a long time before Jesus was born, and I'll begin reading in verse seven. And he brought me to the door of the court. So God is bringing Ezekiel to to see the state of the temple. He brought him to the door of the court. And when I looked, behold, a hole in the wall. Now the door of the court here is the inner court of the temple where only the priests and the Levites were allowed. Verse number 8. Then said he unto me, Son of man, dig now in the wall. And when I digged in the wall, behold, a door. In other words, his vision is, has been enlarged. Verse 9, And he said unto me, Go in and behold the wicked abominations that they do here. And what he's talking about is inside the holy place of the temple where were more idols and, uh, and worship and sacrifice to idols. Verse number 10, So I went in and saw, and behold, every form of creeping things and abominable beasts, things that were unclean to the Jewish people, and all the idols of the house of Israel portrayed upon the wall round about within the temple, is what he's talking about. And there stood before them 70 men of the ancients of the house of Israel, and in the midst of them stood Jehazaniah, the son of Shaphan. So this particular man, Jehazaniah, the son of Shaphan. Who's Shaphan? Shaphan was the man who read the word of God to King Josiah. When he was a young, young man, a young boy, he said, bring me the word of God. I want to hear it. Read it to me. So this man, Shaphan, Shaphan's son, now is leading the nation of Israel into idolatry. And it says there, with every man his censer in his hand and a thick cloud of incense went up. And what they're doing is they're worshiping idols. And it's demonic worship. And they've got all of these pictures within the temple that actually are abomination. They're abominable to God. God has forbid these things. Verse 12, Then said he unto me, Son of man, hast thou seen what the ancients of the house of Israel do in the dark? Every man in the chambers of his, of his imagery. For they say, listen to this. The Lord, Jehovah, seeth us not. The Lord hath forsaken the earth. Verse 13. And he said also unto me, Turn thee yet again, and thou shalt see greater abominations that they do. Then he brought me to the door of the gate of the Lord's house, which was toward the north. And behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz. Now, Tammuz was a pagan female deity of Babylon. She was a goddess, a false god. Sometimes she is called the She used to be. She would be called the mother of God. Sometimes she would. They would call her the Queen of Heaven. Um, to the Greeks, she was known as Adonis. To to the Romans, she was known as Venus. And pagan legend holds that that uh, Tammuz had had an had infant son and that he was virgin-born and that he was killed. And so the women of Israel were so influenced by this pagan goddess who had had a virgin-born son killed that they're outside of the gates of the temple weeping. What I'm telling you is this whole idea of worshiping Mary and the baby Jesus is not new <laughs> And it wasn't original with Catholicism. It existed 500 years before Catholicism ever existed. The worship of Tammuz was so extensive that even the women of Israel would weep for her. Queen of Heaven is not Christian. And I imagine that most good Roman Catholics aren't aware of this, but that title is actually found in Jeremiah chapter 44 and verse 17. And it was used to describe Tammuz, the mother goddess of Babylon, over 500 years before Jesus Christ was born. Another, another, uh, and I'm just highlighting, and again, I, I, it's not Catholicism I'm trying to pick on this evening, but that would be the closest to us. Uh, celibate nuns and priests is not biblical. And yet, hundreds of years before Jesus Christ, it was practiced by the Buddhists and by the Hindus, and they still practice it to this day. The sign of the cross, the sign of the cross used on the end of a pole, uh, was used in the worship of Tammuz hundreds of years before Christ. Confession, confessing your sins to a priest, was a practice of Babylon. Prayer beads, purgatory, existed prior to the birth of Jesus and where did the Roman Catholics get these practices? And the answer is from Babylonian mysticism that goes all the way back to the Tower of Babel. The mother of harlots. Some years ago, a couple of years ago, I watched a documentary. It wasn't really a documentary as much as it was. Morgan Freeman, one, an actor in our country, had traveled around the world. And he was trying to connect the dots. And the, the movie was about God. And, uh, and, he, and he, he, he talked with Hindus and he talked, he went to, he went, went to South America and, and he's, he's looking at different things and interviewing different people and he's connecting the dot that we all believe in the same God. He talked to Roman Catholics and he, he tried to find, all and he, and, he, and he did a pretty good job of connecting how there's so many ways that we all agree. Here's the thing, Roman Catholics are called Christians sometimes. But are they truly born again? Now, I want to say this. If a person's in the Roman Catholic Church and they believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ alone for salvation, are they born again? Yes, they are. Should they continue in that teaching? No. But are they born again? Yes. And and I don't doubt there might be some like that. But, um, you know, as Morgan Freeman talked about those things and interviewed those people, it was titled, The Story of God. And he tracked it back a long time. You see, Roman Catholicism is not the only form of Babylonian mysticism, but it is the one that has infiltrated Christianity. And she may be the one leading all forms of religion in the end of times. Now, I want to emphasize something else. Unity is found in the truth. We are living in a day where there is pressure for us to unite with anyone who somewhat agrees with us on something. Something. And we are not to be part of anything that is anti-Christ or anti-biblical. Roman Catholicism is not a friend of Jesus Christ. And it's not a friend of his body. I'm going to read to you a selection from, from, uh, I believe it's Haley's Bible Handbook. It has to do with church history and, and things about the Bible and history. And I'm going to read to you a little bit about this. Verse 6 in our passage says that this woman is drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When we think of Catholicism today, we don't often think of persecution, do we? I pass a, I pass a Catholic church uh, on the way to church. But Rome opposed, has always opposed, this book in its entirety. I'm going to read to you about some persecution. In the Netherlands, the Reformation was received early. Lutheranism and then Calvinism and the Anabaptists were already numerous. Between 1513 and 1531, so we're going back quite a ways, there were issued 25 different translations of the Bible. In Dutch, Flemish, and French. The Netherlands were were a part of the domination or the dominion of Charles V. In 1522, he established the Inquisition. What's an Inquisition? An Inquisition was the church court for the detection and punishment of heretics. It's kind of like the secret service, only worse. Okay, and I'm not meaning that secret service in our country is being bad. Okay, Uh, but the church literally came up with like a secret service of kind to detect heretics. anybody who disagreed with the Roman Catholic Church. And then they would would persecute them. And under this inquisition, uh, everyone was required to inform against heretics. Anyone suspected was liable to torture without knowing the name of his accuser. The proceedings were secret. The inquisitor pronounced the sentence, and the victim was turned over to the civil authorities to be imprisoned for life or to be burned. The victim's property was confiscated and divided between the church and the state, and in the period immediately following Innocent III, the Inquisition did its most deadly work in southern France, but claimed vast multitudes of victims in Spain, Italy, Germany, and the Netherlands. Later on, the Inquisition was the main agency in the papacy's effort to crush the Reformation. It is stated that in the 30 years between 19, or excuse me, 1540 and 1570, No fewer than 900,000 Protestants were put to death. In the Pope's war for the extermination of the Waldenses, think of monks and priests directing with heartless cruelty and inhuman brutality the work of torturing and burning alive innocent men and women, and doing it in the name of Christ, by the direct order of the, quote, vicar of Christ. And the word vicar means authorized to perform the function of another. The Inquisition is the most infamous thing in history. It was devised by the popes, used by them for 500 years to maintain their power. For its record, none of the subsequent line of holy and in, quote, holy and infallible popes have ever apologized for what they did. In 1525, they prohibited religious meetings in which the Bible could be read. In 1546, they prohibited the printing or possession of the Bible, either in Latin or in translations. In 1535, they decreed death by fire for Anabaptists. Philip II, successor to Charles V, reissued the edicts of his father and with Jesuit help, an extreme wing of Roman Catholicism, carried on the persecution with still greater fury. By one sentence of the Inquisition, The whole population was condemned to death, and under Charles V and Philip II, more than 100,000 were massacred with unbelievable brutality. Some were chained to a stake near the fire and slowly roasted to death. Some were thrown into dungeons, scourged, tortured on the rack before being burned. Women were buried alive, pressed into coffins too small, trampled down with the feet of the executioner. Those that tried to flee to other countries were intercepted by soldiers and massacred. After nine years of non-resistance under unheard-of cruelty, the Protestants of the Netherlands united under the leadership of William of Orange, and in 1572 began the Great Revolt. And after incredible sufferings in 1609, won their independence. Holland on the north became Protestant, Belgium on the south Roman Catholic, Holland was the first country to adopt public schools supported by taxation and to legalize principles of religious toleration and freedom of the press. In France, by 1520, Luther's teacher teachings had penetrated France. Calvin soon followed, but by 1559, there were about 400,000 Protestants. They were called Huguenots. They earn a, uh, their earnest piety and pure lives were in striking contrast to the scandalous lives of the Roman clergy. In 1557, Pope Pius urged their extermination. The king issued a decree for their massacre and ordered all loyal subjects to help in hunting them out. The Jesuits, again that extreme faction of Roman Catholicism, went through France persuading the faithful to bear arms for their destruction, thus hunted by papal agents or agents of the Pope, as in the days of Diocletian they met secretly, often in cellars at midnight. Uh, Catherine de' Medici, the mother of the king, an ardent Romanist, that is Roman Catholic, and willing tool of the Pope, gave the order. And on the night of August 24th, 1572, 70,000 Huguenots, including most of their leaders, were massacred. 70,000, are you hearing this? There was a great rejoicing in Rome. The Pope and his college of cardinals went in solemn procession to the church of San Marco and ordered the Te Deum to be sung. In thanksgiving, the Pope struck a medal in commemoration of the massacre and sent a cardinal to Paris to bear the king and queen mother the congratulations of Pope and cardinals. France was within a hairbreadth of actually becoming Protestant, but France massacred Protestantism on the night of St. Bartholomew, 1572. I read about the Huguenot Wars. Following St. Bartholomew's massacre, the Huguenots united and armed for resistance till finally, in 1598, by the Edict of Nantes, they were granted the right of freedom in conscience and worship. But in the meantime, some 200,000 had perished as martyrs. Pope Clement VIII called the Toleration Edict of Nantes a cursed thing, and after years of underground work by the Jesuits, the edict was revoked, and 500,000 Huguenots fled to Protestant countries. In Bohemia, by 1600, in a population, listen to this, of 4 million people, 80% were Protestant, of 4 million. When the Habsburgs and the Jesuits, that extreme faction of Catholicism, had done their work, Only 800,000 were left, all Catholic, 3.2 million people. In Spain, the Reformation never made much headway because the Inquisition was already there. Every effort for freedom or independent thinking was crushed with a ruthless hand. Uh, Torquemada, a Domitian monk, arch-inquisitor, in 18 years burned 10,200 people and condemned to perpetual imprisonment 97,000 people. Victims were usually burned alive in the public square, and they made the occasion of a religious festivity. Uh, From 1481 to 1808 in Spain, there were at least 100,000 people who were put to death and 1.5 million people were banished. In the 16th and 17th centuries, the Inquisition extinguished the literary life of Spain and put the nation almost outside the circle of European civilization. When the Reformation began, Spain was the most powerful country in the world. Its present negligible standing among the nations shows what papacy can do for a country. And I'm going to stop there. But we live in a day where we all want to agree. And and listen, I'm not saying don't vote for someone who's a Roman Catholic. I'm not saying to be, to put, uh, you know, don't go overboard. What I'm saying is this, Roman Catholicism is not the enemy as much as this, false religion is the enemy. But any church or any religion that embraces these sort of things, it's not their idea, it's not original with them. The religious system is going to be extinguished. Notice in verse number 16 of our text as we close. In verse 16 of our text of, let's see here, Revelation chapter 17. It says, And the ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast, these shall hate the whore, and shall make her desolate and naked, and shall eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. For God hath put in their hearts to fulfill his will, and to agree and give their kingdom unto the beast, until the words of God shall be fulfilled." And the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. There's coming a day when God's going to actually use the Antichrist and those ten kings who make up that confederation of leaders with him. They're actually going to persecute and destroy this religious uh, system entirely. So what does God desire for us when it comes to this Babylonian religion that he describes in verse or chapter 17? chapter 17. But we are to leave her destruction to God, number one. It's not our responsibility. God hasn't called us to that. He will take care of her. But we are to pray for the people who are being deceived by her. Our hearts ought to break for them. We ought to pray for their salvation, that they might believe upon the true Christ, the risen one, by faith alone. Not of works, lest any man should boast. We must not allow ourselves to be caught up in, an, in the ecumenical movement of our day, which, which is religious unity. Does God want unity in this local church? You better believe he does. He absolutely does. But we ought to be more concerned about that than religious unity with all the churches in the area that believe different things. In fact, 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 17 says, Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. Charles Haddon Spurgeon once said, "Now close with this, you cannot have unity without forsaking truth. And to forsake truth for the sake of unity is to betray Jesus Christ. I think of the 900,000 people that were put to death. And I just gave you a brief summary of that. I think about them, men and women, boys and girls, families who claimed to believe in the one true God, people who wanted to read, have a copy of the Word of God and read it, but it had been outlawed, and people who are willing to be led and be burned at the town center at a stake because they love Jesus Christ more than life itself. And uh, when we read about this in Revelation, we re- read about God bringing his judgment upon this, this institution, this organization of man's religion. It should not bring sorrow to our heart. Our hearts should break for people who are unsaved, but it should not bring sorrow to our heart. Because of all the people that this institution, this religious idolatry, that they have led people to hell for all of eternity. It is a tool of the devil that he has used for hundreds and thousands of years for his own glory. And he has sought to rob Jesus Christ of his glory. If those people could be faithful unto death, you and I need to be faithful as well. We're not being, no, there, no one's making an edict that you can't read your Bible, you can't have a Bible. And past, you, you can't come and listen to Pastor Ferguson preach the word of God. No one's telling you that you can't do that. They were willing to die to do it. And you and I ought to be willing to live for Christ with the freedom that we have. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your love for us. Lord, these things sober our minds. And Father, I pray for, for each of us in this room. Many of us have friends who are uh, involved in Catholicism. And Father, I pray for not only their salvation, but, but others as well. Father, these religions of the world, man's religion, are truly of the evil one as he seeks to deceive Father, help us, I pray, to maintain our focus on truth in your word. May we be led of your Holy Spirit. May we love as you love. May we hold to truth and righteousness. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You are dismissed. I'm sorry to keep you long. Good night.